You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The winter holidays are just behind us with their inherent uptick in cooking, baking, potlucks, and parties. Traditional Christmas foods form a delicious spectrum across the world. Americans like ham or turkey as their entree, but in the Philippines it's roast pig. Many Slavic cultures have a large meal with a specific number of courses at a specific time served in a specific order to bring good luck. An Italian holiday would be incomplete without sweets like panettone and zeppoli. A French bouche de Noël is a glorious giant Swiss cake roll. And the Japanese are so eager to eat at KFC on Christmas Eve, they have to make reservations two months in advance. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. For someone in my generation or younger, it strains the imagination to think that yogurt, bagels, and pizza were once weird ethnic foods. My mother tells a story of seeing her first bagel when she went off to college. And there was a line in a Muppet Show episode where Sam the American Eagle refers to yogurt as that weird spoiled milk stuff. We can scarcely imagine our lives without these foods, especially pizza. Early forms of pizza were most likely a flatbread called focaccia, with one or two toppings. The word pizza was first documented in 997 CE. There was no tomato sauce, since tomatoes are a new world food that wouldn't reach Italy until the 16th century. The addition of mozzarella didn't come until the 19th century. Proper mozzarella is made from buffalo milk. That's the Cape Buffalo, which looks something like a water buffalo and nothing like a North American bison. According to legend, these ingredients were first combined when King Umberto I and Queen Margarita visited Naples in 1889. Chef Rafael Esposito combined tomato sauce, mozzarella slices, and basil leaves to honor the red, white, and green Italian flag and named it Pizza Margarita. It was lucky for him, and for all of us, the Queen enjoyed his pizza most of all the ones she tried. Italian immigrants would bring pizza to the United States, but it stayed mostly in their neighborhoods in the Northeast. The first documented United States pizzeria was G. Lombardi's on Spring Street in Manhattan, licensed in 1905. Though there's documentation to prove this, the debate of which New York City pizzeria was first is a heated one. But I have it on good authority, there is no original raise. We're also steering clear of the sticky New York versus Chicago style fight. Eat what you like. 
even if it's a sauce casserole. Pizza didn't gain widespread popularity in the U.S. until soldiers returning from tours of duty in Italy in World War II brought back a hankering for the pizza they had enjoyed there. In the 1940s, sales of oregano increased by 5,200% over an eight-year period due to the surge of popularity of pizza and other Italian foods. In 1957, the Celentano brothers marketed the first frozen pizza. Today, pizza can be found in nearly every corner of the globe, even though globes are round and don't have corners. You could tour the world eating only pizza and not eat it the same way twice. Every country and culture modified this disc of deliciousness to their own tastes. Those of you who get nauseous or angry when you think about pineapple on pizza, which was invented in Canada by a Greek man, may want to jump 30 a couple of times. Australia not only does pineapple on their pizza, they also like to add shrimp. That's actually my favorite to make at home, though I also add green onions and a little sriracha. Brazilians top their pies with hard-boiled eggs and peas. Germany likes their pizza with eggs sunny side up. Why not? It works on burgers and hash. Costa Rica likes coconut. People in China have a penchant for Thousand Island dressing and eel, though not necessarily on the same pizza. India tops theirs with chicken tikka, which is not a native food. It was created in the UK. Reindeer is a common meat for Finnish pizza pies. Koreans top theirs with sweet potatoes and crab. It's worth mentioning that pizza changed the most when exported to Asian countries where tomatoes were not a common food and most people are lactose intolerant. Spicy sausages and cured meats are major players on Turkish pizzas. Venezuela goes elotes style by adding corn and goat cheese. Japan favors squid and mayo jaga, a combination of mayonnaise, potatoes, and bacon that is a street food staple. The major U.S. pizza chains are trying to get a foothold in sub-Saharan Africa, but my research failed to find any pizza preferences, even for such a broad region. If you know of any, please hop on the social media and let me know. Facebook and Instagram slash yourbrainonfacts, Twitter at brainonfactspod. You can also leave it on our voicemail at 804-404-2669. A Russian pizza may have mokba, a blend of sardines, tuna, salmon, mackerel, and onions. There's one country whose preference I don't think I could bring myself to try. Our friends in Sweden top theirs with ham, curry powder, and bananas. Hot, mushy bananas. A bonus fact to cleanse the palate. In December 2009, the European Union established a ruling to protect Naples's signature pizza. Neapolitan pizza was declared part of Europe's food heritage, and that all pizzerias aspiring to supply and make a real Neapolitan pizza must comply to strict traditional standards regarding ingredients and preparation, including using only San Marzano tomatoes and fresh buffalo mozzarella. This protected status will enable producers not only to boast about their exclusivity, but also to charge a premium for their pizzas. The list of pizza preferences goes on and on, of course, and that's sticking strictly to what we define as pizza. 
You'd be hard-pressed to find a culture in the world without some kind of flatbread, whether plain or topped. Georgian kachapuri is often stuffed with cheese and topped with an egg and a generous dollop of butter. Manikish in Lebanon is a dough with a spicy mixture containing thyme, sesame seeds, and sumac called sitar. Chapati is a whole wheat flatbread native to South Asia and parts of Africa, used to pick up bits of meat and vegetables or to sop up soups and curries. Fry bread is a Native American flatbread that's often fried in oil or lard. This is a relatively new tradition, having started around 1864 with the provisions given to the Navajo people by the United States government. The, the good provisions given to them. Fry bread is eaten as a side dish, wrapped like a taco, or smothered with honey or jam. The Czech side of my family cherishes our pagachi, a flatbread with mashed potatoes inside and brown butter and chives on top. Only six of us know how to make it, and only two of us are any good at it. Lavash is a large unleavened Armenian flatbread that's cooked against the hot walls of a clay oven, similar to the way Indian naan is cooked in a tandoori. These breads are soft and flexible when fresh, but dry to a brittle state like a cracker, at which point they can be stored for many months. Quick side note, save yourself a little embarrassment when you go out to eat. Non means bread. You don't need to say non-bread. You're just saying bread-bread. The same thing with chai-tea. Chai just means tea. Ethiopia uses an ancient grain called teft to make a spongy flatbread called injera. Somalia has sabayat, and of course, there are any number of familiar friends, like matzah and pita bread. What about Asian countries where yeasted wheat isn't a staple? You don't have to broaden the definition of flatbread by much to see that everyone is invited to the party. Russia has blintzes, China has wontons, over in Mexico we have tortillas. If you wrap these unleavened flatbreads around something, you get another universal food, the dumpling. Savory offerings could be xiaolongbao in China, gyoza in Japan, pierogies in Poland, ravioli and tortellini in Italy, kartoffeln noodle in Germany, empanadas in Mexico, pitapat in Sweden, pasties in Cornwall, and as a burlesque dancer it's almost impossible not to read that as pasties, pasteles in Trinidad and Tobago, Papas Riena in Cuba, Kanish in Eastern European's Ashkenazi Jewish community, Mandu in Korea, Tropatakia in Greece, Balhinas de Carne in Brazil, Momo in Nepal, Samosas in India, Kinkali in Georgia, and Pelmini, Cheburik, and Piroshki in Russia. And that's only confining ourselves to filled dumplings. Dropped or rolled dumplings can include Monty in Kazakhstan, Brinzove in Slovakia, Spetzel in Germany, Gnocchi in Italy, and of course the dumplings of chicken and dumplings fame here in the south. And that would lead us into pasta and noodles, but I think you're getting the point. Then there are foods that are not universal. In fact, you probably have a hard time convincing your neighbors to try one. These are the traditional foods only a mother could love, or cook, or eat but different strokes for different folks. An extreme food challenge in one country is an after-school snack in another. 
Do you think Americans are more likely to be grossed out by foods from other country than those people would be by ours? We almost never eat organ meat, for example, and our cheeses rarely stink. Me, I've only had brain once, but I liked it. It was like a nice piece of fat from the side of a juicy steak. We'll skip over some of the better-known unusual foods like haggis, deep-fried testicles, and toasted grubs, as well as the eating of animals we usually refer to as pets. Fermented foods are a worldwide staple, but fermented shark? When their Viking forebearers settled in Iceland, the Greenland shark, which is abundant in the icy waters of the North Atlantic, became a main staple for the island. There was one small problem. The meat of a Greenland shark is toxic to humans. At the time, though, it was one of the only sources of nourishment available, so people had to get resourceful. Kaster Hakral, or Hakral for short, is prepared in much the same way it always has been. The shark is beheaded, and the body is buried in sand for 6 to 12 weeks. This gives time for compounds like trimethylene oxide and uric acid to dissipate. After this, the fermented shark, which is about 27 feet or 8 meters long, is dug up, cut into long pieces, and hung up to dry for several months, until a dry, browned crust forms and it smells just right. What just right means, I do not know, and don't want to think about. The pieces are taken down, the crust is removed, and the meat is cut into slices and served. Because of its remote nature and small population, Iceland has become something of a novelty in the minds of outsiders, and this concept is no different in the preparation of Icelandic cuisine, which, along with Hakro, features a variety of other unheard-of delicacies, such as Brennevin, a schnapps made from potatoes and caraway, which actually sounds awesome, Svio, the meat from a sheep's head, but not the brain, Slater, which is made from sheep's intestine, blood, and fat, and hangityot, lamb smoked with hay, both fresh and, we'll call it, already processed. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel! 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Escamoles, a dish native to central Mexico, once considered a delicacy by the Aztecs, like caviar, is made from the eggs of ants rather than sturgeon. The name derives from the word ascamole, a portmanteau of the nautical terms for ants and stew. These prized eggs are produced by the Leometopum apiculatum, or velvety tree ant. However, the odor of their nests has earned them a nickname, La Hormiga Pedora, the farty ant. The light-colored eggs, harvested from maggie plants, resemble white corn kernels or pine nuts. They have a poppy texture, more crunchy if they're fried, and a slightly nutty taste. Often pan-fried with butter and spices, escamoles can be found in tacos and omelets or served alone, accompanied by guacamole and tortillas. If you don't like Aztec caviar, how about Mexican truffle? Huilacoche is a fungus, but not one that grows on the ground. It's corn smut, a fungus that develops on the corn ears as they ripen after the rainy season or an errant rainstorm. Huilacoche will consume the corn kernels and push itself out through the corn shucks where you can see it. It is not pretty. I don't want to gross you out. Much more but they kind of look like engorged ticks. The huilacoche can destroy the corn crop and gum up harvesting equipment, but on the plus side, it sells for more than the corn does. An ear with huilacoche on it can make an 80 cent profit, while the sweet corn itself only profits a few cents per ear. You can use huilacoche wherever you would use a mushroom, choosing the fresh white ones to eat raw, as in a salad. As they're heated, an inky liquid emerges, turning them black in color. Fresh huilacote is soft and velvety, where the canned version is black and more liquidy. The flavor is said to be smoky and earthy, with a taste like mushrooms mixed with corn. Another plus is that the fungus actually forces the corn to create new and healthier nutrients. For instance, corn hardly has any lysine, which builds muscle and keeps skin looking young. Yet huilacoche is packed full of this important amino acid that our body requires but can't manufacture. If corn smut makes you think of ergot, a grain fungus with psychoactive effects, Google around for the theories that the Salem witch trial had actually been caused, or at least exacerbated, by ergot madness. A compelling case can be made. Balut saputi means wrapped in white. It sounds like a cliché describing a bride on her wedding day. In actuality, it's the tag-along phrase that gives balut, a hard-boiled egg containing a mostly developed duck embryo, its name. Fertilized eggs are a late-night snack in the Philippines. Workers and partiers alike turn to these protein-dense, cheap, salty snacks prime recovery fuel. Some even say it's an aphrodisiac. To eat balut, start by cracking off the narrow end of the shell. Then peel a small hole in the membrane and sip the warm, gamey, amniotic fluid. 
Add a little salt and vinegar, then peel and eat the bulbous yolk and the delicate little bird inside. The younger the egg, the more tender the contents, which some fans opt to shoot back like a raw oyster. Older eggs contain more pronounced ducklings with palpable bones and beaks and feathers and a tougher egg white, though really I feel like that's the least of the problems. Vendors know how developed the eggs are because they buy them the day they're laid and then incubate them for two to three weeks. If you're looking for fresh food, you can't get much fresher than Korean sonikji, the still wriggling tentacles of an octopus. The flavor is mild, but its slimy and chewy texture is what attracts the culinary daredevils. Traditionally, the legs are served with sesame oil and sesame seeds to complement the ocean-fresh aroma. A little soy sauce or anything containing salt will make the tentacles writhe on the plate. The most important thing to remember when eating sonakji is to chew quickly and chew hard. The suction cups can still suck and will latch right onto your teeth or even your throat. Half a dozen people choke to death on sonakji every year. My research also revealed a number of different foods in which I found fish or crustaceans that are alive when they're butchered and cooked. And I was beginning to look down on those practices. Then I remembered boiling a lobster and decided not to spill that particular cup of tea. After all this, I need a drink. But what's a drink without a nosh? Who else gets hungry when they've been drinking? Good. Then let's go around the world again. When those hallmarks of beer making have tied one on, Germans enjoy currywurst and fries, fried pork sausage smothered in spiced ketchup or tomato sauce. In Thailand, it's cow pat, fried rice with meat, eggs, onion, garlic, tomatoes, and a refreshing slice of cucumber. Mexico knows what's going on with their love of tacos, especially barbacoa, lingua, which is tongue, or tripe, which is cow's stomach. Tripe also features in their hangover cure, a soup called menudo. North of me in Canada, it's poutine, French fries doused with gravy and cheese curds to soak up the booze. Across the pond, it's kebabs, pitas stuffed with thinly sliced meat, salad, veggies, and various sauces. Bonus fact, kebab refers to the meat, shish refers to the skewer, and doner refers to it being cooked on a rotisserie. In the Philippines, people go for sisig, a sweet and spicy dish made from pig's head and liver. Discerning even when drunk, Italians love a fatty herbaceous pork roast sliced into pieces and stuffed between thick buttery slices of bread. In India in general, and Mumbai specifically, the drunk food of choice is burji pav, a spiced scrambled egg on bread. Mandazi is a popular drunk dish in Kenya. Otherwise known as a Swahili coconut donut, this fried dough is popular because it can go down either the sweet or the savory route. Sri Lanka favors katu, a mixture of chopped vegetables, stir-fried eggs, spices, and shredded gambada roti, a thin fried bread. Jianbing, Chinese-style savory crepe, is not only a popular breakfast food in China, but also a late-night snack. My distant cousins in the land formerly known as Czechoslovakia enjoy smazani sir, a thick slice of emmental or other cheese breaded and fried, and often accompanied with tartar sauce. 
South Korea chows down on tteokbokki and odeng. Tteokbokki is a spicy stir-fried rice cake dish, and odeng is a fish cake. Ramen is the drunk food of choice in Japan. Not the plain bowl of noodles we usually eat, but with all the toppings like you see in the anime. Akarahe is a traditional street food found in Brazil. They are black-eyed pea fritters that are distinct in flavor, often served with a shrimp paste in the center. While all of these foods sound great, the award for kings of drunk food has to go to Scotland for creating the Munchie Box. A Munchie Box is a pizza box filled with an assortment of fried, greasy foods like fried chicken, pizza, kebab, onion rings, fries, and garlic bread. One assumes there has to be a deep-fried Mars bar in there somewhere. After a night on the town, you're going to need something to keep body and soul together the next morning. You can load up on protein with a full English breakfast, also called a fry-up or just a full English. A huge plate of bacon, sausage, eggs, mushrooms, tomatoes, and baked beans. It may not be the healthiest meal, but it's got a lot of the nutrients that your body needs. Bonus fact, the light fare of pastries and fruit is called a continental breakfast because it's the opposite of the English breakfast. If soup feels more your speed, try Korean heijangguk. Heijangguk is a catch-all term for soup eaten to cure a hangover. The most common variety is made of beef broth with pork, congealed cubes of ox blood, and an array of vegetables. Yeah, cubes of congealed ox blood. Maybe we'll stick to pho in Vietnam, a hearty, spicy soup filled with beef, noodles, lime, basil, and bean sprouts. Pho is thought to be an effective hangover cure because it's primarily liquid broth, which helps to fight dehydration, and protein-rich beef. Having a monosyllabic name while your brain is barely functioning doesn't hurt either. In Senegal, the traditional dish to kick a massive hangover is jasa, a citrusy chicken stew. Most recipes for jasa emphasize the importance of letting the chicken marinate in a variety of spices before cooking it. So you probably want to make it before you go out drinking. Levante Muertos is a pork stew Bolivians use to bounce back from a brutal hangover. Its name means raising the dead. Made with pork and potatoes and seasoned with cumin and garlic, this stew follows the pattern of hearty, spicy dishes. Another good one is Tiger Toast, an Australian grilled cheese sandwich that gets its name from stripes of Vegemite. If you're suffering in Turkey, you can get Kokorek, grilled sheep's intestines chopped up with tomatoes and peppers. The Japanese answer to hangovers is miso soup with shijimi clams. These clams contain orinthine, an amino acid that helps to remove liver toxins and improve liver function. By the way, this episode comes out on New Year's Day. A lot of people are thinking about getting healthier. Please do not fall for any detox diet, detox shake, any of that. That's what your liver and your kidneys are for. They detoxify your body. If they're not working right, see a doctor, not a blog. When Russians are faced with a hangover, they reach for rasol, a pungent juice that comes from pickled sauerkraut and is good for replacing electrolytes and fluids. Rossel is often made into a soup, rossolnik, with added beef, barley, and herbs to downplay the pickly flavor. 
A lot of the great hangover or drunk foods are also everyday comfort foods. Spanish tortillas are distinctly different from Mexican tortillas. They're not quite an omelet or a frittata per se, but tortilla española is sautéed potatoes and onions baked in eggs. The classic dish is served warm or at room temperature, and it's a great go-to meal if you want to actually cook dinner but don't feel like putting a ton of effort into it. Mexican chilaquiles are lightly fried corn tortillas that are quartered, cooked with salsa or mole, and topped with pulled chicken, Mexican crema, queso fresco, eggs, and or refried beans. Spicy, crunchy, and creamy all in one bite, it's a comforting dish that's as satisfying as it is versatile. Oden is a Japanese winter dish that consists of boiled eggs, radish, konjac, fish cakes, and broth. Different households and different regions make their own variations with different fish, beef, vegetables, or tofu in this hearty hot pot meal. Peo de Quillo, Brazilian cheese bread, are small baked rolls served as snacks or breakfast food. Very starchy dough is baked with milk, eggs, and cheese to give the bread its unique texture, crispy on the outside and tender and chewy on the inside. Chasui bao, or barbecue pork buns, are a common dish served in Cantonese dim sum. The dense yet soft dough is filled with slow-roasted pork tenderloin and marinated in a mixture of oyster sauce, hoisin sauce, sesame oil, and soy sauce. Pro tip, don't try to make it if you don't have the right ingredients. Just trust me. Kichti, a risotto-like Indian dish made from rice and lentils, is light, filling, and nutritious. This one-pot meal is often flavored with vegetables and spices. I've got to agree with Poland's preference for pierogies, dumplings stuffed with onions, mashed potatoes, sauerkraut, ground meat, cheese, or even fruit, and then boiled, baked, or fried. Often described as Greek lasagna, moussaka is commonly prepared with eggplants or potatoes and served casserole style. Layers of eggplants are sautéed and topped with minced lamb, chopped tomato, onion, garlic, and spices. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. I'll leave you with one more WTF food that I found. Casa Marzu. It's a traditional Sardinian pecorino cheese that's left uncovered, so a specific kind of fly will land and lay eggs on it. Those eggs hatch and burrow into the cheese, eating it and promoting an advanced level of fermentation as they break down the cheese's fat and make it very soft. Casamarzu is considered by aficionados to be unsafe to eat if the maggots are dead, though they do make allowances for if the cheese has been refrigerated, which would kill the maggots. If you choose to eat the cheese, but not the maggots, you can put your piece in a paper bag. The maggots, increasingly deprived of oxygen, will begin launching themselves out of the cheese. They can jump as far as six inches. You wait for the noise to die down, like listening for your microwave popcorn to be ready. But with maggots. But hey, takes all kinds. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. The world is constantly changing and transforming. 
Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.